Well, here we go. We're going into the fifth chapter of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And Paul is, you know, he spent a year and a half uh, founding the church of, of, of Corinth. He has now gone to Ephesus where he's been there over three and a half years. Someone in the church has written to him, a, a, a person by the name, I think it's Chloral, whatever the name is. And he's written to him and he's telling uh, Chloe has written to him and telling him some of the problems in the church. And Paul has basically talked to them about how that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the spirit, but the spiritual man judges all things. He that is spiritual, he says in the second chapter, judges all things. And what he's, he's gradually building up to a point. He's coming to the place now, and in chapter 5, he targets in on the very problems that were in that church. He doesn't hold back. And so here's what he, he says, and let's start with verse 1, and we'll read all 13 verses. He says, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality has not even been named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed am ab as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present with him, with him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. For glo your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened? For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people, but yet I certainly did not mean with sexual immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since you would need to be taken out of the world. Now, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone, with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunken, drunkard or extortioner or even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are, are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself that evil person. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this night and the privilege I have of being able to deliver this sermon. And Lord, this is, not, this is a difficult, some difficult scriptures here. But I pray that you help me to know, make it plain and clear. And I pray that the Holy Spirit tonight would be our teacher. So, Lord, I pray simply that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. For you're our redemption, you're our strength, you're everything, Father. And we cannot do this without you. So I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. It amazes me that there are Christians that I have talked to who supposedly know the Word of God, who supposedly 
are trying to follow Jesus. And in their relationships, I've had people come to me that, that in this way and want to talk to me about getting married. Uh, well, not about getting married, but they want to tell me that they're going to move in together. And I, it really puts me in a spot where I have no choice but to look them in the face and say, no, you don't do that. In fact, you cannot do that. By the same token, so what we've done is we, we have changed all the vocabulary, everything about it. It's interesting to me that one of the things that Francis Schaeffer, who wrote the book, one of the books, The God Who Is There, uh, he also he wrote so many books, but the, one, the God Who Is There is one of the books I read of his. And this is all the way back in the 1960s and early 70s. He also wrote another book called Escape from Reason. He really laid out this whole time. But he, in the process, he also said there was going to come a time because of the doctrines of humanism, which that's what we, where we are today. We've gone beyond humanism. And humanism basically teaches, and this is what we're teaching in our schools where we want to believe it or not. Humanism basically says this, that, that the man has replaced God on the throne. It's no longer, it is no longer what God thinks, it's what man thinks. God is someplace else, and, you know, he's just a part of, of all the things that we do. And that's the reason I, I continually hold in front of you that when you came to Jesus, how did you come? Did you, did you, did you come by addition, or that, you just, that, he, that Jesus Christ just became part of your life, and, and you just added another part of your life like that way, or did you come by submission? When you came to Jesus, did you come because you realized that you were lost, that you had sinned, and you needed a Savior? How did you come? So as we study chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it points out the symptoms of a church that is not walking in the... Not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. Now, you know, we don't call it that anymore. We call it hooking up. We call it uh, having an affair. 
We call it, uh, we call it just living with one another. We call, we call it your, your significant other. We, we go on and on and we do all this stuff when really the, what the Bible says it's called fornication. But nobody wants to be called a fornicator. Or if you're married, it's called adultery. And we don't want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. But this man was actually having with his stepmother having relations with her. And this was so notorious that Paul goes on to say that this type of sexual sin or sexual immorality is not even named among the heathen or among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. But second was the church had refused to discipline the person and he was still going to church and the church was acting if nothing was wrong. We have a responsibility to judge. Now, boy, that sounds foreign in the day and time which we live in because most people would go straight to Matthew 7, verse 1 and say, you're not supposed to judge. That's not what Jesus really taught. And I'll get into that in just a minute. One of the things the Old Testament teaches us about Israel is that you cannot, and this is what the church did not realize, and I think the church today did not realize that we're playing church, and it really is this. You cannot have the power of God without the presence of God. You can't do it. If you expect God to reach out and grab people and save them, if you expect God to heal people, if you expect God to do all the miracles that he's capable of doing, then you've got to have his presence. And if we don't do what he wants to do, his presence will not stay here. The Lord's presence cannot abide where sin is being tolerated. And even as carnal as the culture was in Corinth, the entire city was a buzz about the member of the Corinthian church who was living in immorality with his stepmother. Everybody was gossiping. Everybody was talking about this in Corinth. And may I tell you, the world still loves to see Christians involved in immorality. Oh, they love it. Because it eases their conscience. It justifies their own loose style. One of Satan's favorite tactics is to get Christians involved in immorality. Because he can destroy you that way. What do you think that pornography is so prevalent in the the days and time that we live in? Satan knows if he can get you doing that, you're going to feel like you're going to feel awful or whatever, and you're not going to be able to do the things that you do for the kingdom of God. You know, he knows that. You know, I, we talked about, somebody talked about that through the Bible, you go through for a start with Genesis 3.15, that he said he'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush his head. And, of course, we know that bruising his heel was when Jesus was, uh, that Satan thought he had him when he crucified him. But he crushed his head when? Because he resurrected But there's a red line through the Bible from Genesis all the way through. And this is exactly why in that red line that Satan was trying to disrupt that flow of that red line that would lead to Jesus. This is exactly why that he had Sarah talk Abraham into taking her handmaid in for this, to go a different route. Exactly why Pharaoh tried to kill all those babies in Egypt. Uh, for that, it's exactly why Herod tried to kill all the babies. It's exactly why it's exactly why that Esther did what she did, and he, and her uncle said to her, or her cousin said, "For such a do you not understand that for such a day as this you were brought to this place?" 
And this is also important work. This also, you know, so whether we want to believe, you know, so their refusal to discipline this person was due to the fact of their pride. They had not removed this person. Thus no one had gone to him and said, man, you need to repent and stop this. Instead, they thought we will just ignore it and everything will be, be all right. There have been times that we've had people in our congregation that have come to me and, and they're pregnant. They're not married. And when they do, they come into my office and we sit down and we start talking about things. And one of the things that we do, we go through a time of repentance. We talk about how that they need to come to God and ask Him to forgive Him. And once we do that, once we do that, then I tell them that they need to come back right back to church, be right here, walk through this church with their head held high. Not out of pride, but their head held high. Why? Because they're trusting in what Jesus did and not trusting in what man's done or what they've done. That's the difference. That's what Christ wants us to do. And if they'd removed this person, they could have gone on. Instead, they will just, here's what they said, we'll just ignore it and everything will be all right. And I'm afraid that's probably the condition of a lot of Christians today. If I, think, if I just ignore it, then everything will be okay. I'll just go on. But it'd be like King David with Bathsheba and trying to cover it over. And even taking her husband, Uriah the Hittite, put him in the front of the battle and have him killed in battle. And David thought everything was taken care of. It's okay. And one year went, one year went from the time of when he took Bathsheba in and had sex with her. One year went until Nathan put, uh, put his finger in David's face and said, you're the guy. You're the guy. Nobody knows, David thought, but there's no repentance. And this is the thing. There's no repentance from David. Now, once Nathan put his finger in David's face and David said, I have sinned, I really believe when the Bible says that David had a heart after God, I believe there's two reasons he had a heart after God. One, he wanted the things of God because Saul had, had not brought the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David immediately loaded up on an ox cart. Messed it up that way. Then he read the book of Leviticus and found out that only the Levites were supposed to bring it and put the poles through it and the whole thing. And so they sacrificed. Think about this. They sacrificed a bull every five foot getting it to Jerusalem. You talk about a bloody mess. And yet the Bible also tells us that when Jesus comes back, that, uh, that it's going to be David's temple that's going to be built. Not Solomon, not the tabernacle, but David's temple. And what did David have? He just had a, he just had a tent. But why? Because David sacrificed 24-7. What did that mean? That meant that God could be with his people. Because sin was always being forgiven. Sin was always being forgiven. So when Nathan told him that, and I, so I really believe that one, that David had a heart after God for two reasons. He wanted the same things that God wanted. But the other one was, the moment he was confronted with his sin, he said, I have sinned. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to push it away. He omitted it. And that's what God's looking for. I think that's exactly what Psalm 66, 18 is talking about when it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. 
I don't believe the Lord's saying, okay, you're lost again. I don't think he's saying that. He's saying we're not taking another step until you take care of this right here. And the very reason that some people don't have the blessings of God on their life or some of the things they're trying to do is because they've got sin back here that's unconfessed sin. And as a result of that, God can't bless them. But David thought nobody knew. Thus, what David was doing was regarded as sin in his heart. And 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one says this, For if we would judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. If we would judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. And I think about that, that psalm over here. With the, the, the psalmist asks the question to the Lord. He says, Lord, who gets to go home with you? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Uh, psalms 15, verse 1 and, and verse 2. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And then it says this in verse 2. He who walks uprightly. And works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Now, what does that say? It, it says this. We cannot be, it, it doesn't say sinless because none of us are sinless. But here's what it does say. It says blameless. It says blameless. What does that mean? That means you'll see in that person's life a sin here and a sin here or a sin here. But you also see that it's been brought under the blood of Jesus. That's who gets to go home with him. But David, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, for it says this. Listen to this. This is biggie. If, for if we would judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. If I come to God and I say, Lord, did you see what I did? I messed up. I screwed up. I, I've sinned, Lord. And we mean business. You will not be judged is what it says. We've got to do that. But David did neither. And the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sins will find you out. Whether we want to believe it or not, I believe sexual sins is a sin that plagues many Christian men in the day that we live in. The answer to overcome this is accountability with other men. In other words, what we need to do is we need to have another man in our life, a man on a man, that you're, because it talks about three cords are harder to, to break, and, and to have another man you're answerable to, and you continually examine yourself and you tell your accountability partner what you're dealing with. I don't, listen, this is a bombardment upon men today in time which we live in. You can't go buy a loaf of bread. You can't go buy a pound of bologna or whatever without sexual things coming at you. I don't care what it is. Some men may never look at pornography as far as on the, on the, on the computer or whatever, but brother, they love to get those magazines in that their wife gets that's got uh, the sexual type of, of intimacy things there in it. And the Bible teaches us that we need to be pure in our hearts. Pure in our hearts. Whether we want to believe it or not, I believe this is the sin that plagues us. Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. God wants us to examine ourselves. I believe, I believe also this is, this is important for women because the fact that what I, what I read and what I understand on the Internet and everything else is that this, the percentages of women now that are getting involved in this very thing is rising like crazy. 
that percentage is going up participating in those things. So in verse 1, Paul is flabbergasted because of the sin that's going on. But even more, Paul's astonished at the level of the arrogance of the Christian church. He says, it's actually reported, but there's sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Paul doesn't say it was the man's mother, so it was his stepmother, who from all indications was unsaved and not part of the church. So why doesn't Paul, why is Paul's only concern is with the man? But we're going to see it here in a minute, who was part of the church. And verse 2 says, and you're puffed up, and you have rather, not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Not only was Paul shocked by the sin, but he was also shocked by the indifference of the Corinthian church members. The church was bragging about how all supposed greatness and their greatness instead of being on their knees mourning over their sin. They're like the person who goes to the doctor and finds out that he has malignant cancer and then goes and brags about how good looking he is or he has how, how much money he has in his bank account. One of the true marks of a healthy spiritual church is how they deal with sin. How we deal with sin. But too many are indifferent. And they feel like it's none of anybody's business. Then you have to wonder, do we really believe God is in control? Do we really want his presence? Because if we want his presence, then we have to do something with this. In fact, he, he, Paul writes later on in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there should be no chism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. If you, how in the world can you as a Christian, if you really have the love of Jesus in you and care for other people and you know that they're doing something, you know that they're doing something that's not right, can you not go to them? You say, well, that's a hard thing to do. You, you better believe it. And I've had to do it too many times. Go and stand in front of a man and say, hey, man. What you're doing is not right. And they look at you sort of shocked, you know. When I say it's not right what you're doing, you can't do this. You know. Verse 3, it also, he goes on to say, For I indeed am absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present with him. Done so. Paul's saying, I'm, already, I've already, I'm not there with you, but I've already judged him. I've already said, and notice he said, I've judged him, uh, that... Uh, not and, and yet, frequently people quote Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. But Jesus was not saying that his followers were never to judge. He was warning that not to use self-imposed standards to judge others. That's what he's talking He's not talking about somebody going to, taking the Bible and taking something, a precept or something here and doing the opposite. He's not talking about that at all. Uh, he's talking about somebody that has, has uh, self-imposed standards and they're saying, well, they're not doing what I want them to do. Such people will find that their hypocritical judgment will be used against them because it says over in Matthew 7, verse 2, for which what judgment you judge, you'll be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. But Jesus is not saying, don't judge. In fact, 
the Bible says in Luke 18, I think it's a great example of this, starting with verse 10. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, and one of the Pharisees and the other is a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe to all that I possess. And man, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked the question, tell, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about don't judge. He's not talking about calling a spade a spade. He's not saying that this guy's out here doing what he shouldn't be doing. You go to him and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. He's not talking about that at all. You know, Paul said, I'm not there with you, but I have judged this man already. And then verses 4 and 5, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that, my spirit may, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So what was the Corinthian church to do? They were to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Lord Jesus. They were to act on Jesus' behalf under his authority to exercise his kingdom power. That they were to turn the man over to Satan, that is excommunicate him from the church so that God's covenant protection was removed from his life. In other words, with the umbrella gone, that man would have no defense against the devil's schemes. You know, Jesus one time said, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the soul. And that's what they were trying to get him to. They are trying to get him to the place. You know, the psalmist one time said, it was good that I was afflicted. And sometimes it's a good thing for people to go through things that they got to stop and think, man, what are they? It's like, you know, would the, would the prodigal son ever came to himself if he hadn't gotten down in the pig pen? No, he would have never done it. And sometimes the Lord has to lead us to the pig pen to get down there and eat those carrot pods and everything that we can't even digest sometimes with those kind of things. He's got to get us in a place where that we really see what he wants to do with our life. And with that umbrella gone, that man would have no defense against the devil's schemes. You know? Understand something. That the goal was for the destruction of the flesh so his spirit could be saved in the day of the Lord. Which would you rather have? A few years here on earth or eternity? That's what you measure. Or in other words, Paul was wanting the man to be driven to repentance and even allow the devil to be used as an instrument to accomplish this so the man could be, could be delivered from his sin. And brother, I really believe with all my heart the devil will move in like crazy. People, people want to come in and they want to say, well, I just don't understand why God's doing these things to me. Uh, many times God's not doing those things to you. you. You're not living in a way that God wants you to, so what does God do? God takes his hand off you and he takes his protection off you and as a result of that, Satan moves in. Isn't that what happened to Job? Satan asked God, says, you know, he says, uh, can't you... Uh, he, he's, uh, God loves to brag on us when we're doing what's right. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, 
He says, well, yeah, but I can't touch him because you got a hedge around him. God, he said, you remove that hedge and said, he's going to curse you. So God does what? He removes it. What, Satan? Here he comes. He moves in. How we need that hedge, how we need the blessings of God on us more than anything else. Verse 6, your glory is not good. He's talking to the church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And Paul turns to the puffed up Corinthians and he explains the consequences of them not dealing with the seriousness in the church. He said, and he talks about leaven, a little leaven. Leaven enters a batch or one bad apple spoils a whole barrel. If you get leaven in there, it goes through the whole batch. Don't let cancer metastasize and spread throughout the body is what he's saying. He's talking about the church. Paul is saying sin left unchecked would harm the entire congregation. Remember in Joshua 7, they went down to New York City. They went to, Joshua, they went to Jericho and marched around it seven times, and the walls fell, and boy, they didn't have to do anything. They went in and took it, and God told them because, and, and, and God told them not they couldn't take any of the spoil or anything there. And the reason why was that? Because that was the first city. God always gets the first fruits. Why, was, why did Abraham offer Isaac? He was the first fruits. And, and, and why did he not t- want them to take? Because this was the first fruits as they went into Jericho or, or they went into the, the promised land. And so, but what, what happened? There's a guy by the name of Achan that went and took a bunch of stuff and hid it. He hid the stuff. And so God goes, you know, they, they, now, and, and if you read that story, when they go, they just took New York City, now they're going to Clay City. And they're going up to Clay City, and they say, well, we don't need to pray. They don't pray, they don't, they don't seek the Lord's face, and they go up there and they get the hind ends kicked, and 30-something men get killed up there. And Joshua's on his face, and he says, oh, Lord, you know, you, you, you brought us out here, and now our neighbors and our, our enemies are going to hear what's happened out here, and they're going to come, and they're just going to blow us away, slaughter us away. And what does God say to Joshua? Get up. That's what he says. He says, get up. There's sin in the camp. What does he mean? He means, and though they find out who it is, who is Achan. Because he had taken, so one person affected all of Israel. One person can affect this entire church. One person. In verses 7 and 8, it tells us this. It says simply that, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may have a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not the old leaven, nor with the leaven of the malice and the wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What's he saying? The, the mention of leaven leads Paul to Israel's Exodus experience as an illustration. He says over in Exodus 12, they sacrificed the lamb. They put blood over the floor. The, they actually put blood here, here, and here. Why does that mean? It's for the sign of the cross. The sacrifice the lamb, put blood over and around the doorpost so that when the angel of death would pass over, would pass over them the Lord would not bring judgment against them in addition they were to remain leaven free and in their homes and eat unleavened bread for seven days as a reminder of a hurried departure from Egypt Paul is saying to them that Christ has fulfilled of the past was fulfillment of the Passover lamb he was sacrificed to protect them from judgment and also leaven is a symbol of sin So just as Israel were to rid their homes 
of all leaven, so the Corinthians must clean their homes. I love that little book, and I, I just gave George and them a couple of them called Christ My Home. If you haven't got one of those, let me, let me try to get you one if you can. Just a little pamphlet like that. It's got only about, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 pages in it. But it, it describes your home, and your home is, is, is Christ comes to live with you. And he wants to meet you every morning in, the, in your den or your living room. And, and, and uh, you know, he's going through your house looking at your different rooms, what you got, your, your playroom, your different rooms like that, you know, your sli- where you sleep at, a whole thing. Yeah. And he goes, and, and there's, a, there's a closet over here. And Jesus comes to that, and he says, well, what's in here? And you say, oh, you don't want to look in there. <laughs> you don't look in there. If you, if, you know, he's wanting, he's wanting us to turn everything over to him. You know, that's what he's trying to say to us. Little leaven leaves the whole lump. One person's sin can hinder or stops God's blessing for everyone in the church. Therefore, they must discard the leaven of malice and wickedness so we can live with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, when there's something, and I know that some people may be not getting along or somebody doesn't like somebody or somebody's saying things, I, I, I will just tell you, it, it, it flabbergasts me. I, I just can't help it. I do, you know. And, and it's hard, it's hard sometimes to go on and minister when that's happening. And listen what it says in the last in, in uh, Ch- Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. For as those who must give an account, but listen to this, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. If you're, if you, whoever is over you, whether Sunday school teacher, minister, whatever, if they're if if they're doing if they're doing their job in grief, that's unprofitable for the church. There's times I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I've turned my resignation into cricket. I don't know how many times. I'm serious, man, and it's getting tougher. It's getting a whole lot tougher. And within and, and you know one of the things the Lord keeps showing me over and in Lord Lee we're in a war we're in a war do I do I walk out while we're in a war or what, what you know but I'm telling you it gets tougher and tougher and tougher and when I see people acting selfish when I see people not acting not loving one another like they should I see people that already have formed prejudices against certain people because of, in the church or things I'm telling you man it just kills you it kills your spirit. So he reminds them, and so in Corinthians should have known better than to ignore the church's members' sexual immorality. And he reminds them in a previous letter not to keep company with sexual immoral people. So he writes to them in verse 9. Listen to what he says. He said, he tells them, you know, so they, they take it. It means, okay, that means people in the church. No, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. But listen to what he says in verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or adulterers. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He reminds them in a previous letter not to keep company. But then he clarifies that he did not mean immoral people of this world. 
For then he would have to be taken out of the world. But Paul meant someone who calls, here's who he's talking about, he's concerned with, he's called somebody who says, I'm a brother, I'm a sister in Jesus Christ, and they're doing things that they should not be doing. That's the person he's saying you don't have fellowship with. And he says not only you, do, you, you, you excommunicate them, but you don't have anything to do with them. Why? Because you're trying to win them back to Jesus is what he's saying. So how do you, how do you survive in this world with immoral people of the world who don't believe? One is your whole attitude of wanting to win them to Christ. That's the first thing that you, you're on a mission. And when you meet those people, that don't mean you treat them bad or whatever. You know, we've always tried to welcome people in here no matter who they are, what they got, what they look like, everything else. We don't care. But you, the idea is we want to win them. And the second thing you are to live in such a way that they see the Lord Jesus in you and they'll want Christ because of the way you live. But you say, well, I have all kinds, I have, uh, I have, uh, I have all kinds of influence on people that are out there. People really out there. People doing things they shouldn't be doing. You know, I, those kind of people I just hang with. I can, I can hang with them. Well, let me tell you the third thing. And this is a danger. The third thing, yes, we're to treat them with love and the love of Jesus. But the key is having influence. Who is influencing who? Are you influencing them? Or are they influencing you? Are, you? are you taking them closer to the cross? Or are they taking you farther away from the cross? Because the Bible does say evil company does what? Corrupts good morals. And if you hang with those kind of people and you're, you know, they're, they're, you hang with a crowd that's drinking all the time, guess what? For it's all over with you, you're going to be there and you're going to be teetotaling too. And I've, I've, I've gone to places and people that are part of the church and, you know, I've been invited to come to a place and I go and here's a bunch of people and people got a beer and, and, and they're coming out there all laughing like, and they, and, they tell me, and they see me, and they don't know what to do with that beard. They try to put it somewhere. And, I, and I'm nothing. Let me just tell you, I am absolutely nothing, you know? And I'm not going to judge them for what? You see, the local church, I, and, and I never, but let me tell you how dangerous this is if you're not influencing people. I, when I was, I was just a young preacher I don't know whether y'all remember. Y'all remember a guy by the name of Bob Harrington? Yeah. I mean, he was funny. I mean, he was unbelievable. And, and he brought such a fresh air to Christianity. He used to be, and, he, and, and Rex, y'all remember Rex Humbard? I'll show you how long I've been. But Rex Humbard used to have him on his show early in, on the mornings, you know, whatever. And, and he would just be, I mean, the stuff he would do, you know, he, he, he would... Uh, I heard a story one time that he was walking down through Bourbon Street and a, and a bartender took a drunk and threw him out in the street and Bob picked him up and threw him back in the bar. And the bartender came out there and said, Hey, says, what do you think you're doing? He said, Well, you got him drunk. Says, You take care of him, whatever. And, and, and said, the drunk looked up at him and said, Would you pray for me? And Bob said, Oh, Lord, please help this old drunk. He said, Whoa, 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 whoa. He said, Don't tell him I'm drunk. <laughs> But he said when he got saved, he went forward. He went forward 
uh, he said they gave him a card to fill out. He said, I didn't know. He said they had on there a Protestant and then a Catholic. He said, I didn't know what I was. But he said, when I went forward, I grabbed hold of a deacon and said it took three other deacons to get, him, get me off of that deacon because I was hugging him so bad because I got saved. And he said when the preacher came to visit his house, he wasn't there and says, he came back home and says, his wife said, well, the preacher came to see us. Says he did. So what he want? Said he said, well, he, he just want to know if we saved. He said, saved? He said, didn't you tell him I was on the blacktop committee of that church down there that did one of the best blacktopping jobs ever was? She said, well, he didn't ask nothing about blacktop. He just wanted to know we saved. But Bob was, had, had a huge ministry. But what did he do? He moved his ministry to Bourbon Street. I've never been to Bourbon Street. I've heard nothing but, you know, terrible things about it. It's one of the worst places that you possibly can go to but Bob was going to say he's going to set up right in the middle or whatever and that was you know he's saying whatever but what happened to him he got pulled in they began to influence him more than he could influence them and it cost him his marriage and when it cost him his marriage it cost him his ministry and everything and I saw him years later and he was just a shell of himself you see, it, it, it's okay. We, we got to love people, and what, this is what Jesus did. But we got to have that influence on them. The local church is to be a hospital for the sick, a place where sinners can come to be healed. We, just, we, we must welcome the sick and never keep them away. And that even includes LBG, whatever alphabet you want to use. Paul is saying... We are not to associate with unrepentant persons engaged in some sin who claim to be a Christian, a brother or sister. Unbelievers are expected to live as unbelievers, but those who consider themselves a part of God's family are expected to live as God's people. Let me say it again. Those who consider themselves part of God's family are expected to live as God's people. This doesn't mean that Christians never sin. It means a clear pattern of sin are not acceptable and must be confronted. To call oneself a child of God and live like the child of the devil is a contradiction. But if a so-called brother refuses to repent, then we have no choice but to excommunicate. If we've gone to him, if we've done what the Bible says, and one person has gone to him and he won't listen, and two people go and he won't listen, then we bring him in front of the church. And see, that's not, you don't hear that doing in their day and time. I heard a story when I was going through some counseling conferences of a deacon that called his pastor and said, Pastor, says, I got a problem. He said, what? He was a head deacon. He said, my daughter has come home and told me that she's pregnant not married he said that night um, they literally had her come up in front of the church and she confessed that sin she said I am pregnant now some people would say well that's being that's not being loving and kind to have somebody do that but I don't tell you what the, what the pastor said here's what he said he said once she did that, the people of the church just came to her and gathered around her and loved her to death and said, it was done. 
said, if she hadn't done that, if we hadn't done that, she said, what would have happened? Would it would have been, would it would would then everybody talking behind her back and whispering and all that? Is that what you want? But said it was gone. And he said, I'll tell you what else it did. It laid a, a real impression on a lot of our teenagers. I said, man, if that's what you gotta do when you know, I ain't getting, I ain't doing that. I ain't going to get it, no, uh-uh, anyway. But if a so-called brother refuses to repent, then we have to excommunicate and can't fellowship with him. And we're not to have fellowship with him like a fellow Christian. And why? Why are we to not do that? Because he's ignoring the divinely prescribed process of the church. That's why. It's not just us, it's Jesus. And listen to what it says in Matthew 18, verse 15, starting with verse 15 through 18. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Okay? And then verse 17, And if he refuses to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And this is what... This, and if you'll notice, there's a process. You don't just bring him right up in front of the church and say, well, we're going to. No, it was one person goes or two people go, and you're being loving and kind. And if he'll do what he has to do, he'll repent right then, and that's the end of it. But if he continues on, then you've got to eventually bring him in front of the church. So well, what was Paul upset with? Was he upset? And, and we're going to find out when we go over to 2 Corinthians that they finally did it, and this guy, they actually brought him back into the church. And he had repented of it. And that's what we're after. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have everybody get ready to go when the Lord comes. We're packed, ready to go, and go on. So, so anyway. But what does that show us? It shows us the responsibility that every person here in this church has. Not just me, but you have also. I don't know everything going on in this church. You know, I, I, you know, sometimes people come to me and say, well, I guess you heard about it. No. No, I haven't heard. <laughs> I don't know what I want to hear. You know, there are some people, they just want to come tell you everything. You got to be careful that you're not gossiping. Now, that's the other side. So, so, so anyway, so, you know, doing it in love, doing it in love. <laughs> We're going to have a verse of invitation tonight. And uh, if there's somebody that wants to come forward and pray for something or pray for somebody, then please do that. If the Holy, you know, why, why should I do that on nights like this? Well, we did it this morning. Whatever, because the Holy Spirit's telling you to do it. If the Holy Spirit's telling you to do it, then you need to come. Okay?